0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. This week, in honor of giving thanks and cuddling up in front of the fire, we're revisiting one of my favorite interviews, a conversation with Clara Parks, famous in knitting circles for her wool advocacy and someone who puts my own obsession with sheep to shame. I hope you enjoy When's the last time you were able to find a really nice, a 100% wool sweater at the store? I'm drawing a blank, which is part of the reason I started knitting my own sweaters a few years ago. One of the people I encountered as I sank deeper and deeper into the woolly world of yarn was Clara Parks, who started out in 2000 with a newsletter reviewing yarn and now has six books under her belt, including the New York Times best-selling book, Knitlandia. Her seventh book, Vanishing Fleece, is a yarn of a different kind. The unlikely story of how she adopted a 676-pound bale of wool and, in the process of transforming it into commercial yarn, got an inside look at a disappearing American industry. Parks's journey takes her across the country, from New York to Wisconsin and Maine to Texas, meeting shepherds, shearers, dyers, and the countless mill workers who tend the machinery that's kept us in woolens for more than a century. But for the past 50 years, that industry has been on the verge of utter collapse, thanks to the ravages of offshoring, union busting, and the corporate quest for profit. Clara Parks joins us in the studio this rather cold November to relate her adventures in American wool. Thanks for talking to me, Clara. Thank you for having me. So you would started out writing for knitters in 2000. Now it's 19 years later, and Vanishing Fleece is a much bigger story than the story of only yarn, even though saying only yarn is sort of disingenuous. So who do you see as the target audience for this book, Vanishing Fleece?
1: For this book, I see it as anybody who's curious about the world around us, right? Curious about the fabric that is on our bodies. And wool in particular, it's almost like salt or cod, right? It's been with us for 10,000 years I mean, we we started breeding sheep for their wool about 3000 BCE, like when we started, when we figured out writing, (laughs) we started wearing wool. Wow! So it's, it's anybody who's interested about fabric
0: or just like the world around us, there's a huge story in wool. Right. And it seems true to me that the further away we get from making our own things, whether it's a wool sweater or, you know, fishing for our own cod or collecting our own salt, any of these things that you mentioned, the less appreciation I think we have for the work that goes into it. So can you outline, generally speaking, the path that like the pound of wool for a sweater takes to get from the back of a sheep to the back of a human? Okay, yeah. You would have your sheep. They're usually bred in the fall. And then in the spring,
1: about three weeks before lambing, a shearing crew comes in and they will shear the current their winter coat off of the sheep so that they will be more comfortable for summer, so that birthing will be easier, so that the lambs can find their food source without any problems. just keeps them clean and comfortable. So at that point, the wool is baled up and it needs to be sent to a scouring plant. And depending on the kind of wool, the softer wools tend to have more grease on them. So you could end up losing like 50% of the weight that came off of the sheep, once it's been scoured. So then from scouring, it would go to the mill and that's where you have to decide what do I plan on doing with this? How do I plan on having it spun? Do I want to have color before it's spun or after it's spun? But assuming we're talking about just like a very standard something, you would then send it to the mill where they would open up that bale and they would run it through. Um, an initial thing called like a a picker. It it basically really opens those fibers up because they've been really compressed this whole time. And then they run it through machine after machine after machine that is, it's sort of like sifting flour, Mm -hmm. so to get each fiber separate from each other fiber so that they can move freely as they're being spun. Because we're not spinning it anymore by hand. When we were spinning it by hand, we could just slow down, speed up, move, kind of fuss with things. So it goes through multiple stages of carding and pin drafting and that kind of thing until it is spun. And then you have to decide, how many of those strands do I want for what I'm making? Do I want just one strand alone, which isn't going to be as strong, but it's going to be softer? Do I want multiple strands twisted together into applied yarn? So then you'll have to take multiple bobbins and twist them together. And then once you have the yarn in the construction that you want, it's still really um, kind of dense. I don't want to say sad, but it's, it's not its best at that point. So it's on a, a bobbin and it needs to be put onto a cone What's fun is in the in the mill world, like every piece of equipment relies on a different type of cone or spool or bobbin. (laughs) So at every stage, it comes off of one machine and has to be rewound onto the next spool where it goes through that stage. And then it has to be rewound onto a bobbin. And then at that stage, it has to be rewound onto a cone. And every single time you do that, there's loss as well. So finally, you have the yarn that you want, and then it has to go to a dye house. And dye houses, we don't really that I know of have any dye houses connected to mills anymore. There are very few dye houses left in the United States commercial scale. Um, Most of them are in the Philadelphia area. That's just historically where it's been because that was the carpet industry. So you'd send it there and they would dye it into whatever color you wanted. There's a whole protocol for sending them the color that you want and they work through to match it they would dye it and then it finally goes to whoever is going to make your garment and then it has to find its people so at that point it could be maybe one quarter of what it was when it came off of the sheep so it it takes a long journey and historically it used to be a very short trip we had mills in every town in every county. You would have all of this set up, but now there's a bigger carbon footprint because there's just less in the world now.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, your great white bale of yarn, all six hundred and seventy-six pounds of it, takes quite the journey across the country. How many different places did you send this this bale of yarn? I I chose four mills. Originally, I thought
1: I would do six, but that was A, ridiculous, because (laughs) mills work on their own time frame, and this was supposed to be a year, and that just wouldn't have worked. But also, I, I wanted each mill to represent something very specific, so they weren't just gratuitous choices. So the first mill was Bartlett Yarns in Maine, and it's the earliest kind of example of mechanized spinning that's still in use in the United States. It's called a spinning mule. And it's a really, really cool piece of machinery that, that it moves to mimic the movements of the early hand spinners. And then that was later replaced with a frame where everything sits still so that you can spin yarn twice as fast because it's not moving half the time. So for that one, I sent it to, um, Blackberry Ridge Woolen Mill in Wisconsin and, um, Partly because I knew she was, she's a smaller mill and I needed someone who'd be willing to slow things down and explain them to me. And the bigger mills, like they are trying to go through like 10,000 pounds a day. And I was sending them, I have 223 pounds, will you do something with it? So it was, um, and so she explained this next piece of equipment called the spinning frame. And then from there, I wanted to go to both of those types of spinning. It's part of the woolen system. And it's all just how the fibers are prepared before twist is applied. So in the woolen system, there's the least amount of preparation. So it's this wonderful, fluffy, jumbled, like, you know, grandma kind of sweaters in the the best possible way, or like a bowl of oatmeal. But then for things like socks or kind of the newer sort of slinky merino stuff that we have, it goes through another step called combing, where all the fibers are aligned in a more uniform way and all the short irregular fibers are removed. And there's a ton of loss in that. I can't remember now, but it was like 50% of the fiber I sent in was lost. Um, So for that I needed, we only had one mill that I know of in the U.S. that has their own combs on site. So that was at Kramer Yarns in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. And then the last mill, I went back to the woolen spinning system, but it was the biggest mill that I could find to work with that didn't require a thousand pounds right up front. And that was S&D Spinning in Millbury, Massachusetts. And they spin the yarn that goes inside every Major League Baseball. And at the time, they were spinning yarn for the uh, navy pea coats, which have now been removed from the whatever you say, the mandatory sea kit bag. So it's now optional in favor of a nylon parka. I'm just going to let that sit there. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it was uh, so I went from small to big and old to the newest stuff that we have just to show kind of the scope of what's out there it started as how it's made but it really became who is here what is their story how are they still here Uh, how can we help them
0: right well to turn that question back around on you how are they still here because a lot of them have been around for decades if not centuries Mm -hmm. a couple of these mills are quite quite Mm -hmm. old how did they manage to survive like the tumultuous globalization and labor unrest from the past hundred years barely barely Um, the the
1: mill in Pennsylvania uh, Kramer he kept saying we did what we had to do to survive so originally they owned this huge uh, facility and they had to sell the building And like one by one, all the buildings went elsewhere and they now rent a part of the building where they used to be. And they sold off a lot of their equipment. I mean, it's all it's really easy to frame as tragic and it is extremely difficult, but it's also becoming more efficient. So they're able to do now with fewer people and smaller space, an equivalent of what they were doing. So that's good. But a lot of it, it's just been holding on the S and D people—they were ready to close. They had tagged the equipment, and there's another irony. It was the—I've um, already forgot—a museum in Lowell, the American Textile Museum, that was going to take this equipment, and that museum has closed. Mm. <laughs> so people are holding on. A lot of people are gone, but at this point, there's hope. As there's a beginning of an onshoring wave, they're getting busier and busier, and we're almost at the place where
0: there's room for somebody new to come in as well. You talked about onshoring and how a lot of, or not a lot, but a number of companies have either sprung up or returned even to the United States in making their garments, their textiles, their wools here. And there's also, I think, a resurgence in going back to craft and artisanal things, whether it's making those things yourself or buying from a local maker. How do you think that is into the resurgence of wool can we say there's a resurgence in wool like is this the only growth spot for the industry i think there definitely is a resurgence in wool
1: and i feel like the 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 way in which albert's shoes were embraced is a perfect example it's now valued at what over 1 billion or is it even 2 billion dollars as a company Mm -hmm. and it started with wool shoes we have farm to feet which is doing wonderful stuff in the sock sector, completely traceable socks, everything is made in the US, even the the labels and the display cases. And also now that we're understanding about microfiber pollution, there's just more reason to start looking at different fibers. And why not go with the fiber that's been with us for thousands and thousands of years? And it's every year they offer it up to us. It's annually just there. And they need us to take it. From them, or else they won't be comfortable. So it's, I, I feel like I'm doing my stump speech, but it's like, (laughs) how can you not? It's it's like biodegradable, and it puts nitrogen back in the soil, and it's it has the highest combustion temperature of any natural fiber, so it's really hard to burn wool, whereas a polyester sweater, and I know we all have them. I'm not trying to shame people, but it it will burn. It will ignite and burn really quickly. And even the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, they've come around. They're now the biggest single purchaser of wool in the United States. Wow! And they have a no melt, no drip policy. So anything that comes in direct contact with your skin cannot be 100% polyester anymore because it's just too dangerous. So they're using wool and they're using cotton. They're using natural fibers. Yeah. So I do think there's a a reawakening right now it's a good time for wool
0: can you talk more about um how wool is good for the environment beyond just what we wear in our bodies because you've talked a lot about its like breathability and how good and comforting it is for us Mm -hmm. um but this touches a little bit on what you were saying with um the microplastics and returning nitrogen into the soil Mm -hmm. how is wool good for the environment in that way it's,
1: it's very interesting. Like right now, um, there are more studies being done on quote-unquote carbon farming. And the key here is that um, it all relies on responsible land management, right? So anywhere that you put like 100,000 of anything and they graze everything down to nubbins, it's not good. But combining sheep with regenerative agriculture practices where you're moving them, rotating them from area to area, people are able to quantify how much carbon those sheep are helping sequester. And even in their wool they sequester more more carbon than cotton can sequester as a fiber and um, cellulose cellulosic, so like um, bamboo, Or rayon or any of those so it's they can play a very vital part in regenerating our soil just by virtue of all they need is sunshine and water those are the only inputs so sunshine and water makes plants grow Plants pull the excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and they sequester it into their roots. And then the sheep eat the plants, and it causes the plants to, whoa, shoot more carbon down into their roots for safekeeping. And then you move the sheep along. There's at least one farm out west, uh, Lani Estill. She did something for North Face. It's carbon neutral, what she's doing. She's been able to determine, like, she's sequestering more than she's taking. I know animal-based agriculture is in a challenging spot right now, but the less we stand in our corners and say, no, it's bad, or yes, it's absolutely good, you're terrible if you don't believe in me, and and kind of start to go into the gray area. And also because I feel like humans have, we made a pact with sheep 10,000 years ago, and that if we hadn't made that pact, they would be extinct now. They're prey animals. They wouldn't be here. So it would be kind of an abdication of our moral responsibilities if we just said, well, that's it. We're not going to do well anymore. They would be gone. And so why not try to, to do the best that we can with them here now, see what we can accomplish.
0: Right. Because we've Bread them to require shearing and to require basically that we make wool sweaters from them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh no. <laughs> we have to make sweaters. <laughs> so the the thing with shearing a sheep, it is a necessary act. It, it's like clipping your cat's nails. It's different, but it's a similar. If you didn't do it, the animal will quickly suffer. the The Shrek, the sheep in New Zealand who evaded shears for several years, uh, he was deeply suffering by the time. They found him and it was kind of a miracle that he managed to live. You can get wool blindness, they can get fly strike, where flies lay eggs in the fibers and they, when the larvae hatch, they bury themselves deep into the folds of skin of the sheep and eat the sheep alive from the inside out. That's an awful thing. Um, and so you shear to prevent that. In a lot of places, it's actually legally animal cruelty to not shear a sheep you can get in trouble for it. But last year, there was a whole spate of ads for polyester garments, where they used, it was uh, one company used a picture of Shrek, the sheep that was suffering, to say, this is great, because this is guaranteed no sheep were harmed, to suggest that this was a happy sheep. And we didn't, hurt it by taking away its coat but it's sort of like saying don't worry we didn't milk that cow we, we let it stand in the field and be really uncomfortable and get mastitis because touching or interacting with an animal is a cruel thing and I don't want to suggest that shearing doesn't have its challenges anytime you have a human being negotiating with an animal especially when you're working with rams there's there's a tussle I mean there are animals And yet it represents three and a half to four minutes of that sheep's year. Especially when the recommendation is instead of wearing this fiber, that's a natural annual byproduct of this animal, it's removed for their comfort. Why don't you wear this sweater that's made of recycled soda bottles? And I'm all for recycling soda bottles, but it's just contributing to more and more plastic. That's a different kind of cruel if you think about how it's hurting the earth, how it's hurting marine wildlife, how those microfibers are getting into our bodies. They found them in bees and in honey and mosquitoes and frogs and leaching chemicals in our organs and messing with our endocrine systems. That's not kind
0: either. And that really is a global problem, which brings me to my last question for you. Yours is a book that takes place solely on this country on the continental u.s just because that's where you happen to live and that's where your bale of yarn happened to come from but i wonder you know the u.s is not even the main supplier of wool in the world it's like one percent something yeah it's very small Mm -hmm. um and sheep aren't even native to north america Mm -hmm. so i mean would your masters of yarn making have looked the same in like a peru or an australia or someplace else where sheep live oh it would have been very different i think
1: um I mean, it would have looked different because the breeds are different and the culture around the animals are different. Mm-hmm. Um, the The mechanics of it would have been the same, but the culture around wool is different. And I, I mean, I would have. I would have loved to do this in other countries, but it seemed very preposterous to, you know, oh, I'm going to England and let me tell you how to do wool. OK, <laughs> I don't care that your empire was built on, on wool. Listen to me. I'm an American. No, and and I really, I didn't mean for this book to be a nativist manifesto about American will. It is just that this is where I was. And what I describe in the book is something that is happening around the world, everywhere. People who rely on sheep for their livelihood or who've connected their well-being to the well-being of sheep, they've all faced a similar kind of decline. And interestingly enough, the last time Washington went to the World Series... Uh, The United States was the fifth largest wool producer in the world, and it's gone down to the point where wool represents 1.2% of all global textile fibers today. And yet today, we buy three times as much clothing per year than we did in 1960, but yet we spend one-third as much for it, and the majority of it is non-renewable, non-biodegradable, highly flammable fibers. It's just you look at it that way and it's almost like a, a horror story <laughs> unfolding. You want to yell like, don't do it. It's not going to end well. <laughs> and wool is just so interesting. I mean, they're, they're doing so many things with it. They're using it for air masks in, um, in Asia. And also, I believe, in Australia, just of, like in California, when they were in the forest fires, they were sending them there so that people could breathe. There are wool pellets that you can put in your garden in the soil. And it's just waste from shearing. So it's not even, it's like ways to use the byproducts. They're using wool to insulate packaging. So if you have like a food delivery thing, that it can now have wool waste inside and you can throw that wool away and it'll biodegrade. Um, there are wool bandages. There's a guy in New Zealand who's doing that. Somebody else is doing wool in composite materials for surfboards. And he's finding that it's a very efficient, like it's as good or better than the current fiberglass model that they have. And they're even wool coffins.
0: (laughs) The ultimate. You can be born in wool and then die in it. Yes.
1: (laughs) End to end, cradle to grave.
0: Totally biodegradable. (laughs) So it's just, it's such a cool thing. And sheep are so great. They're such good company. There are so many layers to the clothes we make. And I love that Clara Parks' book takes you all the way from sheep to sweater or sock, or hat, or whatever that wool becomes. We're so disconnected from the processes behind the things that we wear and use today, and Clara Parks' book, Vanishing Fleece, is definitely a crash course in understanding at least one of those processes. We've got links to the book and some really awesome videos from various mills in the show notes, as well as some of the companies and farms that Clara mentioned. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care! and stay warm.